built as a Catholic mission in the early 1700s by the Spanish government. After some seven decades of missionary service, it became a military fort. Spanish soldiers that were stationed there dubbed it El Alamo. Spanish word for the cottonwood because of the groves of cottonwood trees that were close by the fort along the San Antonio River. By the, 17, by, by the 1820s, Mexican troops controlled El Alamo as Mexico was battling for their independence from Spain. In 1821, Stephen Austin brought some 300 U.S. families into Texas to settle at the um, uh, permission of the Spanish government. They were looking for a little bit of a buffer, possibly, from Mexico. But over the next coming number of years, there were, there were a number, hundreds of U.S. families that migrated to Texas. In the mid-1830s, there was the beginnings of uh, discontent and revolution and even armed conflict as the Texans were looking for independence from Mexico. December 1835. El Alamo now was in control of Texas forces. Just two months later, in February 1836, General Sam Houston called for uh, the removal of, of all people from San Antonio, saying, we cannot uh, support that particular town. It, we, we don't have the troops to do so. There were two officers in particular at El Alamo at that time, Colonel James Bowie and Lieutenant Colonel William Travis, who said, no, we will stay and we will fight. Legend has it that William Travis unsheathed his battle sword and drew a line in the sand. And he said, quote, those prepared to give their lives in freedom's cause come over to me, unquote. A decision had to be made. Would they cross the line and fight? Or would they flee to safety? That phrase, a line in the sand is millennia old, but it found its way into American lore at the Alamo. That phrase um, depicts courage, decisiveness, inner strength. Make a decision now. Jesus had his own lying in the sand. 
And we find it drawn in John's Gospel, chapter 8. I invite you to turn there with me. John chapter 8, beginning at verse 21. Then Jesus said again to them, to the religious leaders, the Jews, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. And he was saying to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they were saying to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, What have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize that he was speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. As He spoke these things, many came to believe in Him. Point number one, the line. Verse 21 opens with, um, w- without a time stamp, and, and, and there's, a, there's a, a loose connection with what precedes and what follows. John says, then Jesus said again to them. We don't know exactly when this took place. It may be, that this happened, this, this conversation, this back and forth took place immediately after the Feast of Tabernacles that we, were, we have been looking at in chapter 7 and chapter 8. It may not be related to that point. What we do know is that the Feast of Tabernacles that we read about in chapter 7, chapter 8, happened six months, just six months prior to Jesus' death. These words, beginning in chapter 8, verse 21, where Jesus is is drawing a line in the sand, evidences the fact that there is a short period of time whereby these that were in Jesus' audience had the opportunity to make a decision. They had to make a choice. He says to them again, I go away. Now, that may not seem initially exceptionally um, insightful uh, to you. 
um, what, what you, you don't have is the advantage of the original text, which, which tells us that the, the pronoun I is included in that statement, I go away. Well, in the Greek language, um, the, the pronoun is built into the verb. You don't need the pronoun. So to have the pronoun there, it's the pronoun ego, um, is, to, is to cause you to take notice. We, we could translate this uh, maybe a little more, more, more literally and uh, uh, woodenly. I, I go away. And when Jesus says that, he's communicating the fact that he's in charge of his life. The Jews wanted to kill him. They wanted him gone. But they weren't the ones in charge. Repeatedly have we, we, we read and we will read, his time had not yet come. The Jews were not in charge. Jesus was going to go away on his timetable. He knew exactly what needed to take place and when the right time was. It was just six months away. He says this, I go away and you will seek me. Now initially we might think, well, that's a good thing. It's a good thing for people to seek Jesus. But we know from this very sentence uh, that this is not a seeking with repentance and faith. This is a different kind of seeking. I, I, I wonder if it might be like the kind of, of uh, statement that we heard on the lips or we read about coming from the lips of the centurion who was in charge of Jesus' crucifixion. You remember after, after uh, or as Jesus was on the cross, as he was dying, uh, this particular centurion said, Surely this man is the Son of God. There's that kind of hushed awe that there's more here than I can grasp. There's, there's more to this story than simply a guy dying on a cross. I wonder if Jesus is saying, I go away. You're going to seek me. You're going to be looking for me. You are going to feel guilt because of your deeds. But it won't be a, a, a guilt. It won't be a sorrow leading to repentance. It will be that sorrow of remorse. Sorry that I got caught. Sorry that I'm going to have to face the consequences of my actions. But not one that actually brings about repentance and faith. How tragic. Jesus says at the end of verse 21, where I am going, you can't come. Because heaven is reserved for those who are marked by repentance and faith. So this seeking of these, uh, these men's is, uh, is, is not a finding of Jesus. This, this seeking leads to their death. You will seek me, Jesus says, and will die in 
your sin. What a tragic thing for someone to see the Lord Jesus on the other side of the line and yet remain where they are and not step over the line, not join Jesus. To not step over the line, to not have faith, is to reject Christ. It is to flee from the battle that is ours as believers against the world, the principalities, the powers of darkness around us. And these are the consequences. Those who do not step across the line by faith, repentance, these are ones who are eternally separated from Christ. That line becomes an impassable gulf. And those stand condemned. They cannot come. They are not privileged to come. They are not invited to come. They are not called to be with Christ in eternity. I go away, you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. That's a stark warning. Let me put it in a positive light. What does it mean, what does it look like to step across the line? Well, it means that that I, I respond to the Lord in faith. I believe Him. I trust Him. Here in this particular study through uh, John's Gospel, um, months ago, I gave you a little uh, uh, acronym to describe what biblical saving faith looks like. You remember the acronym CAT? C-A-T. Um, let, let, me, let, me, uh, let, me, let me back up and give you just a little bit of background on this. The, the uh, reformer Philip Melanchthon, he was Martin Luther's right-hand man. Um, he was the first one to write a systematic theology um, during the Reformation. Um, uh, 1521, to the best of my recollection. And in, in that, Philip uh, Melanchthon articulated what, what is it that God asks of us? What does biblical saving faith look like? And he came up with these three words. He didn't pull them out of the sky. He pulled them out of Scripture. He said, um, biblical, faith, uh, biblical saving faith is marked by notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. Well, those are Latin phrases that mean nothing to all, any of us so so uh, my 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 little acronym cat is is a a way to not just translate but to describe what melanchthon said what the scriptures say about biblical saving faith content 
affirmation, trust. All three must be present for there to be biblical saving faith. All three are present as a person steps over the line drawn in the sand. This is what it means to believe Jesus. Content, affirmation, trust. It begins in my mind, moves to my heart, includes my will. In my mind, I must confess uh, certain, I, I, I must know, I must understand certain truths. There is content to my faith. First off, I have to know that I'm a sinner. And I have to know that uh, God is holy and that he requires perfection of his creatures to be in his presence. Problem, I'm not there. How can I get there? Part of the content of God's gospel is Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, is that perfection. And by his atoning death, God's requirement for perfection is made perfect. Um, my, uh, the consequences of my sin is imputed to Christ. And his righteousness is imputed to me. Uh, by faith, I am wearing the righteousness of Christ, enabling me to be in the presence of holy God. So, um, I, my, my, my faith begins with, with the right content. Secondly, I have to affirm that that content is true. Now, you can be an expert in Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, uh, and not believe a word of it. If, if, if that content hasn't moved from your mind down to your heart to say, uh, I know this is true, you're not, you're not on the path of, of biblical saving faith. Now, uh, according to James, um, the, uh, the, the demons believe and they shudder. They have the right content. And they have the right affirmation. They know that mankind are sinners and, and Jesus is the, 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 the only way to, to righteousness and to pleasing God. They, they know that it is by faith that, that uh, sinners are saved. They know that's true. Mind and heart is engaged. But for the demons, they haven't engaged the will. And that's the third point. My mind is engaged. My heart is engaged. My will is engaged. I choose to trust Jesus. I believe in him. I trust him. I submit to him. Absolutely submit to him in all things. I surrender to him. He is the Lord. And I step across the line, to, and in that act I am saying, I trust him in every way. Biblical saving faith includes all three. Content, affirmation, trust.
Turn with me over to John chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. That one does not come into judgment but has stepped over the line. They have passed out of death into life. This warning by Jesus is serious. It's sobering. Um, let, let, me, let, me, let me point out another similar text. Romans chapter 1. The Apostle Paul's writing here, and he speaks in similar, serious, sobering words. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their, their foolish heart was darkened, professing to be wise, and they became fools." and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals, crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26, For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, Verse 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. So having drawn this line in the sand and calling sinners to step across in faith, those who say, no thanks. And stay on the, on the side of the line where they've always lived. Those are not only separated from God, but God gives them over to whatever they are choosing. Pride, sensuality, idolatry, materialism, take your pick. God gives them over. Let's them go their own way. 
to their own destruction. Jesus says, those will die in their sin. Look at the consequences. Romans chapter 2, next chapter, verse verse 6. He, that is God, God will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, but, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. Glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good. For there is no partiality with God. The line that is divinely drawn demands a response. Make a decision. Now. Second page of your notes. The Jews before Jesus did not understand the gravity of his words. And whether intentionally or unintentionally, um, they... um, they were just baffled at, at what Jesus was saying, um, heard what he was saying only selectively, and then turned that into a, a mockery. Look at verse 22. So the Jews were saying, Surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come. The only word that these Jews heard from Jesus is the word die. And they thought, well, that doesn't apply to me. I'm healthy. Uh, I'm, 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 in, I'm in good shape. I, he's got to be talking about dying himself. And so their reasoning goes, if he says he can't, we, we can't follow him, then obviously he's talking about something pretty dark, pretty ugly. According to first century Jewish preachers, suicide resulted in a, a, a soul that was in the deep, deepest, darkest hell. So the Jews are thinking, well, if Jesus is talking about death, he's obviously not talking about us because we're fine. He must be talking about his own death. We're going to try to hasten that along. And if he says we can't come where he is, then he's got to be talking about committing suicide and going to hell. Well, we're certainly not going to go to hell. That's their thinking. Uh, And they completely missed the point. Verse 23, Jesus was saying to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. 
Jesus is, is going back to his illustration of the line in the sand. And he's saying, you were over there and I'm here. And he points out that he has knowledge about the line in the sand and the consequences for, for those who do not trust or for those who do trust because he's from above. He comes from the Father. He is speaking authoritatively. Therefore, verse 24, Jesus says, I, I said to you that you will die in your sins because he is speaking authoritatively. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. I want you to notice a couple things in verse 24. Twice, he uses the word sins, and it's plural. Verse 24 is largely a repeat of the warning in verse 21. But you'll notice in verse 21, the word sin is singular. What's the difference? Jesus is saying, you will die in your sin. He's saying, because of your unbelief, because of your unwillingness to step over the line in faith, you will die because of that sin. Now he expands it in verse 24, including not just the sin of unbelief, but that which is attendant to it. I will die in my sins of unbelief, of a lack of repentance, the absence of, of, of the fruit of faith. I, I, I will die because of my, my uh, willfulness to do my own thing. I will die because what is of greatest value, what is of greatest importance to me is not, is not Jesus and not eternal life that's on the other side of that line. No, I want what I want right now, those things that God has given them up to. I said to you, you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. If you have the, uh, the New American Standard text, the NAS, you'll notice that the word he, that little pronoun, is italicized. The editors of the NAS text um, italicize words, not for emphasis, but to give the reader um, a, a heads up that that particular word or phrase is not in the original text. It's, it's uh, certainly implied, and they are not incorrect to include that. But if we strip away that particular word, which isn't in the text, it reads this way. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. That's the, 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 the familiar phrase that we find in John's gospel, ego emi, uh, I am. 
It's, it's the, 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 the phrase that the, the Greeks word to, to translate the, the, the tetragrammaton, the name of God, Yahweh, the I am. Unless you believe I am, unless you believe that Jesus is God Almighty, the incarnate God Almighty, in, unless you believe that he is the one who has authority over sin, over the power of death, you will die in your sins. The stakes are high. There is no doubt about that. Um, and those that are wise take careful stock of the cost to cross that line. Verse, verse 25. The Jews were saying to Jesus, Who are you? Just like we find in, in verse 21, um, the, the pronoun you is written out here. You don't need it because it's built into the verb, but, but it's written out here, and, and we could translate it here. It, it, it has emphasis. You, who, who, who do you think you are making these kinds of demands upon us? Who are you? Is the sense of that, ver of, of, that, uh, of, of that phrase. And in this, uh, my second point here, we, we find that Jesus is showing his alignment with the Father. They think they're okay with God. They think they're okay with God because they're Jews, because they are physical descendants of Abraham, because they have been circumcised, because they, hold the, they have the law. And all those things are good and they're wonderful, but without faith, no one can please God. So in response, Jesus says to them, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? This is though Jesus says, guys, you, you, you haven't been listening. You haven't been watching. Haven't you seen all of the miracles that I have done? He has authority over nature. Calming a storm like that. Raising the dead with a word. Raising the dead? What? Feeding thousands of people with a couple of dinner rolls and a couple of fish? What? And his teaching. All the people were a buzz that Jesus taught not like any of the rabbis. And the claims that he made of himself, all by themselves that you would think, this guy is an arrogant fool. And yet, you go back into the Old Testament where we find those claims and we find that they were prophetically written centuries before Jesus ever walked the earth, and he fulfilled every one of them. And they had the audacity to think that Jesus was a mere human? What have I been saying to you from the very beginning? 
Verse 26, Jesus says, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you. It's like Jesus is saying, um, <laughs> your, your, your eyes are closed, your ears are stopped up, you're not seeing, you're not listening to anything I'm saying. I have many things to say about you, but I'm not going to say them to you for two reasons. A, it's going to go nowhere because you're not hearing and you're not seeing. But secondly, I'm going to only limit what I say to you based on what the Father gives me to say. End of verse 26. He who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I speak. Verse 27, they didn't realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. They thought they were okay with God. So Jesus says, verse 28, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, or that I am. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who has sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. We see these things true of Jesus. He is true to the Father. He is consistent with the Father. He is obedient to the Father. Jesus never goes off on his own and acts independently of the Father. The Son and the Father are united inseparably on the other side of the line. The Jews thought that they were all snuggled up with God and fine. No, the Father with Jesus is on the other side. They are not aligned with God. Jesus never went rogue. He never acted like an 11-year-old boy that had no supervision and complete freedom to go and wander and get into whatever he wanted to get into. Jesus did, said only that which was given him by the Father. They are inseparably united. Verse 30, as he spoke these things, many who were listening stepped over the line. They came to believe in him. When William Travis unsheathed his battle sword and drew that line in the sand. He had 20, uh, he had two, some 200 men in front of him, including David Crockett. And he called those men to step over the line and join him in defending the fort. 
all but one joined him, stepped over the line. James Bowie was suffering from pneumonia and was on a cot. And he asked some of his men to physically pick him up and carry him across the line. They knew the stakes were high. They knew that they would die. The Mexican general Santa Ana was bearing down on San Antonio with thousands in his army. They knew the odds were so far against them. To step across the line was to step into their death. They knew that. And all but a handful did physically die. That small handful of four or five people were selected by Santa Anna to be kept alive and sent as uh, reporters of what happened and what Santa Anna promised would happen to the rest of the Texans who rebelled against him. Similarly, in Christianity, to step across the line in faith is to die, to die to self, die to sin, die to Satan, die to um, my enslavement to my, my own lusts, whatever those are today. But oh, the freedom of being able to be a slave unto righteousness, to be a servant of Christ, for the first time to bring honor and glory to God. Allow me to add one one word of warning to what Jesus has already said this morning. We've all been at the beach, if not physically, uh, virtually, and we've drawn lines in the sand, and we've scribbled names in the sand, and we've built castles in the sand, and then to our chagrin, we, 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 we have watched the, the tide come in and Wash away the line and wash away the names, wash away the castles. And it's gone as though they were never there. Time is limited for us to cross the line. We have today. And that's why we read in the scripture today is the day of salvation, because we don't know what's happening tomorrow. It may be that the Lord takes us home. It may be that he returns. Either situation, uh, the, the line is erased. And the opportunity is gone. Make a choice. Now. Our blessed Father, we thank you for 
the clarity of Scripture and the urgency of it. We pray that as you give us opportunity to speak the word of truth, your, your good news, your gospel, to the people around us, give us that sense of urgency that other people might not dilly and dally and, and, and think that they've got lots of time to, to think and to ponder. And No, there is a line in the sand now. Decision must be made. Find us obedient, faithful, courageous, trusting, repentant. In the name of the Savior we pray.